This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Hurricane Matthew did do some massive damage to portions of the southeast. Flooding in the Carolinas had damaged assessments north of $1 billion in North Carolina alone. And in many cases, insurance against a catastrophic event like a hurricane or an earthquake is not purchased by consumers or it's purchased too late. So the $1 billion question is why? Wharton's Howard Kunruther uh, put together a report that looks at the insurance industry surrounding catastrophic events. Howard is a professor of decision sciences and public policy here, as well as co-director of the Risk Management and Decisions Processes Center. And he joins us once again in the studio. Good to see you. It's been a while. Always good to be back here, Dan. Thank you very much. Uh, So why is it that, that seemingly at times insurance is not purchased in these cases? Well, it's a real challenge, uh, uh, Dan. Uh, people generally feel that these events are not going to happen to them. That's a simple but tr- answer that seems to uh, really make the whole process very, very difficult. So people are living in areas that are hazard-prone. Uh, they like the area because there are lots of other features that are very positive. They're near the water. They're on a beach and whatnot. They don't want to think about the event. And it's a low-probability event, so they often yeah. they have not experienced it. And so there's a tendency to feel I don't have to protect myself uh, because it's not going to happen to me on my watch. Hurricane Matthew was interesting from the perspective of uh, a lot of people figured that uh, the area along the Florida East Coast was really going to get hit by this. And they did suffer damage, but maybe not as much as a lot of people thought. It ended up being North Carolina, which ended up being a a lot of the focus, and even inland. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of people inland had massive flooding that that they were dealing with. And I'm sure most, a lot of those people, they wouldn't even consider you know, this type of insurance. I think that's exactly right. One of the real challenges in this area is that there are areas that are affected that are not classified as being high hazard areas, flood-prone areas. They are not required to buy flood insurance. uh, And in many cases, uh, people may have no idea that they could have uh, a damage from something like the hurricane and Hurricane Matthew being a good example. There's also areas like Baton Rouge that are inland uh, that had storms surge and heavy rainfall. Pensacola had that in 2014. Baton Rouge had it uh, this past August. And very few people in these areas uh, have flood insurance. And there are two reasons. One is, just as we said, they didn't expect it. They didn't know. The other is they're not required to buy it. And if people are not required and people in the flood insurance program, if you have a federally insured mortgage and you're in a high hazard zone, a a zone that is classified as special flood hazard area, Uh, you have to buy it. Uh, Many people still don't, or it's not fully enforced. But if you're not in that area, you don't have to buy it, and people will think that they're safe. And that's a state-to-state decision, correct? No, no, that's a federal decision. That's a federal decision. That's the National Flood Insurance Program, which is what markets that policy. And so I think one area that I'd want to mention right away, given what you're saying, is the the importance of having accurate mapping. Uh, And FEMA is working on that. Uh, I'm on the, uh, the technical 
Mapping Advisory Committee, just for full disclosure, where we've been talking about the fact that you have that FEMA at this point is really working hard to get maps that are really, really better designed to let people know what the hazard is and to communicate the risk in a way that is not the, the case today because of the fact that the maps really don't designate areas along the lines of what you've just said. Well, and, and we talked in, in the past about the fact that there are certain areas in and around Louisiana and portions of, of the state of Florida, maybe towards Miami, where the level of the water is changing, you know, even as we speak and could be vastly different in 10 years. So even doing the mapping now, mm-hmm. you, you're doing it as kind of a, a, you know, as good as you possibly can, potentially knowing that there will be change, you know, within the next decade. Well, I think that's right. And I think the first step is to get the mapping now. Let's put that on the yeah. table and get yeah. good maps now. Yeah. The second step, and it has to come at this, uh, you know, as quickly as one can do that, is to really recognize that with climate change, with other factors that are happening along the lines of what you just said, the maps may change and that you want to at least recognize with sea level rise as a real uh, issue that has to be considered that we need to pay attention if you're going to be designing new homes to recognize that they will have to meet some of the uh, problems that we don't have right now but will have in the future. For the most part, is the insurance necessary for a lot of these people that live near water uh, or could be in these in these paths of these storms. Is it affordable these days? Well, this is a major question, and I'm glad you brought it up, because in the issues brief that uh, you're mentioning that I recently wrote and in other work that our Wharton Risk Center has been doing, uh, we raised the issue of affordability right at the outset. Right. And there are two principles that I think need to be considered when you're dealing with insurance to make it acceptable, both in terms of communicating the risk, but also uh, uh, dealing with the equity and affordability issue. Insurance premiums should reflect risk. Sure, yeah. Uh, and that, and and the reason for that is that if you have a premium that reflects risk and you let everyone know this is what your insurance premium should be in the sense of saying this is what the risk is that you have, you give people information that they otherwise wouldn't have. Right. And if you subsidize the premium right at the outset and never tell them what a risk-based premium is, they're never going to know and they're going to think they're a lot safer than they actually are. So that's one reason. The other reason is that if you tell them that and you say, look, there are things you can do to reduce your insurance premium and reduce your risk if it's Mm risk-based, and that is to make your house safer. And in some cases, you can elevate. In other cases, you can flood-proof. There are things that you could actually do. And a risk-based premium would go way down if it turns out that you will actually take those steps. But if that's all you say and you're raising the question of affordability, you really are dead uh, in many ways before you get started. Yeah. Uh, you really have to address the issue of equity and affordability. We feel very strongly about that uh, in our risk center, in our work that we're doing. And I personally feel, after having interviewed a number of people and low-income people in Pensacola, that if we don't deal with that issue, we're doing an injustice on a, at, a, at a very broad level. So the view that we have taken, and that let me say, 
say, it was mentioned in, in the issues briefing and other publications of our risk center is that you have to somehow deal with this, but you shouldn't deal with it with an insurance premium. Okay. You should deal with it in other ways. And we deal with it in our society today with food stamps for people who can't afford and you give them a voucher. Okay. And what we're suggesting is give them a voucher for saying to them, if your premium is very high because it's risk-based now, we'll help you out. We'll tell you what the premium is. We'll help you out with a voucher. But at the same time, what we would like to have you consider is mitigate and make your house safer. And if you mitigate yeah. and make your house safer, the premium is going to go way down by doing that. So it's, it's, it would be a philosophy almost like the, the energy-saving uh, principles that the, the government has pushed forward with uh, windows, with low-E glass, and, and some of the other things to try and, and, and make energy-saving moves uh, within homes so that the, the person's normal monthly energy bill would be quite a bit lower. A perfect example. As I'm glad you mentioned it then because that's exactly the kind of thing you could do uh, with uh, damage from floods or hurricanes or storms or any, any damage to one's property. Right. You could basically say, we will help you out with a long-term loan. That, we, that you would pay back over a period of 10 or 20 years right. to help you to make your house safer. And the cost of that loan would actually be lower than the insurance premium reduction. So you will actually benefit in money, much yeah. the same way that you save on energy. So the analogy is really a, one that we've used and that you're really referring to that people really understand. You save in energy yeah. by making your house uh, energy efficient or by investing in solar or wind. And that's basically the same idea here. Howard Kunruther joins us from the Wharton School. Your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Now, obviously, with, with Hurricane Matthew, we're, part of this focus is people that live near the coastline. One of the other areas that obviously a lot of people need to think about is if you live on a river. You know, you could be along the Mississippi River, which obviously has gone over its banks a variety of times over the last couple of decades. Here in the Philadelphia area, if you go north of here in the, on the Delaware River, up near a town, uh, uh, near uh, Newtown or New Hope, uh, that river has gone over its banks and people have lifted their homes, put them on stilts over the last few years. Those are investments that, at least in the last decade, for the most part, tell me if I'm wrong, that they have had to make on their own. They have not had the ability to have some sort of break because of what they're doing. Mm -hmm. No, I think you're absolutely right. There, are, These people have done these things without the kind of assistance that we're talking about. And for low, you know, if they have a high enough income, they can do it. If they have a low sure. income, they're not in a position to do that. I think the first time that this really came into play on a, on a national level was after Hurricane Katrina, right. where you had a whole set of people in Louisiana who really felt that they could not really live in their homes anymore without doing something to them. And a number of them are now elevated. And the, the challenge uh, that I think we face today is uh, the point that, that you're raising is that if you can make this thing affordable to people, and if you can have some mechanisms to do it, you would have a lot of people doing things that they otherwise couldn't do. And you do need to have some kind of public sector involvement to you, do that. You mentioned your work that you're doing with FEMA. Is this something that Congress is aware of? Because seemingly this is this is going to take some action 
through the government to be able to kind of push this even further than it, than it probably is at right now? Well, I think Congress is always aware of it when new legislation comes forward. Right. And so we have the renewal of the National Flood Insurance Program in September of 2017. Okay. And so I think now FEMA is putting a great deal of time and energy into thinking about what the features should be of renewing that program. And a number of us are thinking about that and trying to work with FEMA and other groups like the National Academy of Sciences, which is concerned about these issues through some of its committees, right. to say, here are some of the things that really need to be considered. And I would say one of the things that the two top things on the list that we would like to see done, and I think FEMA is concerned about, is the accuracy of the maps. Because if yeah. you don't have accurate maps, it's very hard to talk about a risk-based premium. It's very hard to talk about how much you will save by mitigating. Right. And it's really hard to talk about how much the affordability problem is going to be there. Because if the rates are actually lower than what people are paying now, and you may find that out, then they may feel a lot better about their insurance premiums than they currently will do. In the paper, you bring up some ideas that you would like to see implemented uh, to try and tackle this problem a, a, a little bit further. Uh, you met architecture we've kind of touched on a little bit uh but one of the interesting ones that you have here uh, are public private partnerships mm -hmm. uh go into that a little bit and exactly how that would all play out well right now the national flood insurance program is a public sector program okay almost everyone buys their insurance through at the what we call the nfip national flood insurance program and so you have one insurer now the private sector could easily play a role here if they had risk-based premiums that right. they could charge and you knew what those premiums would be. But you would still need a program like the NFIP to deal with a lot of the issues on two levels. One is you'd want to make sure that you had the affordability issue dealt with. And insurers can't do that right. because they are charging the risk-based premium. So you need to have some kind of voucher, whether it would be FEMA or whether it would be the Department of Housing and Urban Development that would do it, that they would give house vouchers for housing costs. Someone has to help out the people who are who could not afford, who are currently living in the area, not ones who are moving in. And the other part where the NFIP or, or, or public sector comes involved is in very, very high losses, catastrophic losses, where mm -hmm. the private sector says they can't provide reinsurance, which is the insurance to the insurers, yeah. because it'll be too large. And there you'd want to have a backstop. And we do that right now with terrorism today. Right, uh, right. And, and other disasters. And so those are the two things. But it is that public-private partnership that we would need uh, because of the vouchers. But mapping, if you would say one priority that I'd want to put at the top of the list yeah. is that Congress should give the money to have accurate maps. And it may be $5 billion to map the country, but the payoff for having that money provided now would be so, so important. I, I would think that if you invest that money, uh, not only does the mapping help you with potential issues of flooding and, and, and low-lying areas with storms, but I would think there would be other risk areas 
where that would be very, uh, very important data to have on the on the on the books. I think that's right. I mean, any time that you have a map, now these are maps that you could say on one level they're flood maps, but the whole idea of better mapping and even talking about what it means to have a, an accurate flood map gives a whole community an idea yeah. of what it is that they can do. So it isn't just the individuals. You get a map, and all of a sudden the community says maybe we need to do something with levees or dams or seawalls, which they wouldn't know before. Right. And then they'll get a benefit from the program by having a lower premium for all of its residents, because that's one of the features of the uh, National Flood Insurance Program. They have a community rating system, and communities will benefit. They will benefit a great deal more if they know what their risk is, and they have a good feeling that they can do something to reduce it, and everyone benefits from that. You also mentioned multi-year policies in here as well. And I'm guessing the majority of policies in this area are year-to-year right now. They're all year-to-year. Yeah, exactly. So by doing that in a a multi-year plan, is it as simple as you're locking these people in to have this insurance coverage for more than two years? So at some level, the... You have the uh, you have the known quantity for the insurer, and that can lower the cost over time for the people that have to buy the insurance. Well, I think there the, 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 the it's in in the spirit of locking in. Let me say some positive things about what locking in means. Right. Yeah. Uh, people tend to cancel their insurance. Even if they're required, they may not be checked out in doing it, and certainly if it's voluntary, if they haven't had a loss for a few years. It's extremely hard to let people know that the best return on an insurance policy is no return. They should celebrate the fact they haven't had a loss. Now, with a multi-year policy, you first of all get people to have – be protected for more than one year and maybe three to five years. Uh, But you can also tie it in with a loan. And so at that point, the loan uh, becomes part of that. And what the individuals have two things. One is they say, my premium is stable each year for five years, rather than feeling the policy might be canceled, uh, which could be done by the private sector, not so much by the NFIP, or the premiums may go up. So you have a notion of their being able to be protected. They also know that they are now thinking about this on a longer term. So investing in mitigation with a loan is positive. And also they try to see insurance as protection rather than the notion that, gee, if I haven't had a loss, look at what I could do with my premiums. One of the other things you bring up is also that uh, in some of these properties, if in fact there is an issue with a violation of building code or a structural issue, that it should be the the builder that should be held liable instead of the person that actually owns the property. A really important point you're raising, but really challenging to actually implement. Well, or Uh, prove, I would think, in uh, some cases, right? In some cases, it may be to prove, although I can say that after the fact, I'll give you the best example we know of in Hurricane Andrew, uh, which was back in 1992 in Florida. They actually determined that one-third of the damage could have been avoided had the building codes there been enforced. Hmm. And so they actually were able to determine that. Now, 
now Florida has the best building codes because of that particular disaster. But as we were saying earlier, it took a disaster for them to actually yeah. get that building code in place. So it's really hard uh, in this country, or we, although we can push for it, to have that kind of responsibility. We don't tend to have it. But in Chile, to use an example, and we've talked about that on, on another uh, program on the earthquake risk, yeah. uh, but Chile has a policy that uh, any developer is responsible for any damage to the structure for the next 10 years after it's built. Right. Now, that immediately would tie in with a building code. If you have that, then the d developer would say, we better make sure that building code is actually <laughs> that, enforced. You also bring up uh, an interesting idea about auctioning off contracts, which would be catastrophic re uh, reinsurance contracts from, I guess, from the federal level that would go to insurers uh, at other levels to be able to help them with the costs that they're dealing with, correct? Well, this would be an idea that uh, has not been implemented. It had been proposed by uh, Chris Lewis and Murdoch uh, in a paper a number of years ago. Uh, but it would tie the whole idea of having federal uh, catastrophes and the protection by the federal government to, to private reinsurance so that there really would be a public-private connection in right. a way that would actually say, let's begin to see what price people would be willing to pay for catastrophic coverage. And the auction would be a way to do it. Uh, I don't want to get into the complexities of that, right. but it would be something that one could, again, begin to think of where the public sector could play a role. How important then is, I mean, obviously, just by you bringing it up several times, that you have to get the mapping done. Absolutely. Beyond a shadow of a doubt, the mapping has to get done in the next few years. That's certainly my feeling now. Being on the mapping committee yeah. uh, obviously introduced me to this in a way that I hadn't been before. I'm not an expert on mapping. I learned a great deal more. I'm on the committee from a risk management point of view, and that's why I was appointed to the committee. But I would say that from a risk management strategy, if you don't have a good map, you're losing three things. You can't communicate to people what the risk is right. and be confident when people will complain that they're not being mapped accurately. And you really want to make sure that they know that you you can encourage people to mitigate and take steps because they don't really know what it's going to benefit from accurately. Right. And you can't deal with the affordability issue because you can't really know what how much you have to pay because you don't have an accurate estimate in terms of what their risk-based insurance premium is going to be. We've talked about this uh, a lot in the scope of the United States, but obviously there are disasters that happen around the globe as well. Uh, what is the viewpoint of other countries uh, towards disasters and towards uh, catastrophic insurance? Well, I think that countries vary greatly in how they deal with it. France, uh, as an example, has the federal government playing a, good, a, a, a much more important role in providing uh, both protection and uh, and they don't have risk-based premiums, for example. Right. Uh, the UK, uh, as an ex it comes a lot closer to what I we would see as a model here in the United States. They have all of the hazards in one policy, something that one could think about. So a homeowner's policy will cover the flood risk and the earthquake 
risk, which it doesn't do in this country, right. uh, and uh, as as well as tornadoes and other wind damage, which it does do here. And so you have everything together. And then they have a new program that they started called Flood Re, which actually then tries to provide protection to the public, to the insurers, with respect to what their what will happen if there is a very severe flood or if people in very high hazard areas uh, actually have to pay a high premium, they will be actually subsidized. Right. I think the challenge with the flood reprogram, just to put it on the table, is it doesn't deal with affordability in quite the way we would like it to. But that is a good example of something that has been done that is much more market-based than we have right now. The, the other part that is kind of wrap this up is, is the fact that if you look at the history here in the United States, uh, we have had uh, some rather large, massive storms here in the last 15 years. Obviously, what happened down in, in New Orleans, uh, Sandy, a couple of years ago, uh, seemingly, and even Sandy was called once in a generation, but seemingly these are storms that will still pop up. We know that they will. So if we know that they're going to be here, why aren't we addressing this on a, on a little bit more important level? Well, it's an important point to end up on here, Dan, because it comes back to where we started. If you don't have a disaster for a few years, people are going to say it's not going to happen to yeah. me. Florida has not had a major hurricane since 2005. And so they have been lucky. I mean, you can say that, but because they are at, at, because of the fact that they've had they had four in 2005 four and yeah. another one or two in 2005. But people have forgotten that. And so I think the real challenge is to get this on people's radar screens. And the one point I would make on that as we are concluding this is that if you can stretch the time horizon and let people know if you're living in your house for 25 years and there's a one in a hundred chance next year of a hurricane or flood occurring, the likelihood of that occurring over a 25-year period, not just one, but more than one, is greater than one in five. And yeah. if people then understand that and you tell them, give them that information, they're likely to pay a lot more attention to the idea of tuning out when you just tell them it's one in a hundred. A lot of people that live... Uh along the Jersey Shore and in and around New York City would have, they would have been the perfect examples of this, of people that wouldn't, you know, you'd never think that it would happen. And then it did happen. And then it's like, well, why wasn't I prepared? Mm -hmm. Howard, thank you very much for coming in today. Always good to be with you. Thank you for having me. Dan. Thank you. Howard Kunruther of the Wharton School joining us here in the studio. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.